Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be bringing you part seven of the case of serial killer Willie Picton in Vancouver, Canada. Let's get right to it. Again, I'll be referencing Stevie Cameron's book on the farm, Robert William Picton and the Tragic Story of Vancouver's Missing Women for much of this episode. Investigative journalist slash author Stevie Cameron covered the Picton case extensively. I can't recommend enough that you pick up a copy of her book. Let's pick up right where we left off. The year was 1997, and so much happened I couldn't even cover it in one episode. Maria Laliberte, Stephanie Lane, Sharon Ward, Kara Ellis, and Kelly Little had all vanished, and at this point, the year was only halfway over. The girls on the street were talking about Willie, but the Vancouver police were still sitting there twiddling their thumbs. Surprise, surprise, the disappearances continued. 37-year-old Janet Henry was last seen having a drink at the Holborn Hotel on June 25, 1997. Her sister had spoken with her over the phone the next day on the 26th, but then nothing. Janet was reported missing just two days after that phone call on June 28. At 37 years old, Janet had lived through enough tragedy than most people see in a lifetime. She was the baby of 11 children and her trauma began at an early age. Her mother was already struggling by the time Janet came along. She had put one child up for adoption and another had died as an infant. And things were about to get much worse. Janet's father was a fisherman, and when she was still very young, he had fallen overboard and drowned. Her family was destroyed. Without her father in the picture, her mother was unable to care for the nine children she had left by herself. The children were separated and sent all over the place. Some went to residential schools or foster families, and others were raised by their older siblings. One of the older sisters, Lavina, was caring for some of the children when she was brutally raped and murdered by five men. Lavina never really received justice, and for whatever reason, each of the men were only given a five-year prison sentence. Brutal rape and murder, five-year sentence. In 1990, Janet's brother Stan was struck and killed by a police car in a tragic accident. The following year, her sister Debbie committed suicide at the young age of 23. And after all of this, when Janet was just a teenager, she had been drugged and raped by serial killer Clifford Olson. Y'all remember him from previous episodes, right? He was an absolute monster who drugged, sexually assaulted, and murdered children. His youngest victim, Simon Partington, was just nine years old when Olson attacked and killed him. 
Janet reportedly had no conscious memory of what had happened, but investigators believe she had been drugged with chloral hydrate and raped. Despite all of this, Janet tried to pick up the pieces and create a life for herself. She became a hairdresser, got married, and started a family. In 1985, she gave birth to a beautiful baby girl she named Debbie, after her sister. Things were looking up for Janet. That was until three years later when her marriage failed and her now ex-husband took little Debbie and moved away. Without her daughter, Janet's life spiraled out of control. She met a man and moved in with him in Vancouver. He was deep into addiction, and misery loves company, so he convinced her to get high. And for an instant, this took away all of her pain and trauma, and it didn't take long before Janet was in the throes of a full-blown addiction. She turned to prostitution as a way not only to fuel her addiction, but her boyfriend's as well. Tragedy struck yet again when Janet's boyfriend died of an overdose. All alone and out of options, Janet moved into a hotel on the downtown east side, and things were about to go from bad to worse. In the months prior to her disappearance, Janet was brutally beaten and raped again, this time by a man named John Gary Sylvie. As it turned out, a neighbor had called 911 after they heard screams coming from Janet's room. Police arrived in the nick of time. Janet had nearly been choked to death. Sylvie was convicted of the attack and Janet was awarded a measly $3,500 as compensation for her injuries. On June 25th of 97, Janet called her sister Sandra, who despite everything going on in her life, she always remained in contact with. The two made plans to meet up later at a restaurant. When Janet didn't show, Sandra knew instantly something was wrong. She called 911 and asked for a welfare check. Police informed her that nothing looked out of place at Janet's room, but there was no sign of her and further, the room had been paid all the way up until the next month. But Sandra wasn't going to settle for that answer. No ma'am, no ham, no turkey. She went to her sister's room herself. She knew her better than anyone, and she was going to get to the bottom of it. She thought to herself that maybe Sylvie had come back and killed her. Panic rose as she headed over. But when she got there, she realized the police were right. Absolutely nothing was out of place. But it didn't look like Janet had just up and left either. A suitcase was left behind packed as if she had plans to go somewhere, along with a small hygiene bag packed neatly with a toothbrush and toothpaste. If Janet was leaving, why didn't she take her suitcase? It didn't make any sense. So Sandra reported her missing and headed to the downtown east side, armed with pictures of the beautiful Janet, asking anyone she saw if they had seen her. No one had. After speaking with their other sister, Sandra recalled to Stevie Cameron that Janet had told her that she often went to parties at Uncle Willie's farm in Port Coquitlam and that she just didn't care about life anymore. Janet has never been seen alive again. However, after all these years, her sister keeps her memory alive with a Facebook page called Fond Memories of Janet Henry. 
According to that Facebook page, Janet had two beautiful daughters who she loved with her whole heart. She liked listening to Janet and Michael Jackson and had a solid white cat named Nermal that she adored. Her sister writes, Creating fond memories of what my sister was like before she went missing. She was happy. She loved animals. She was a great mother. She was a loving auntie. She was my beautiful sister with a big heart. And that right there, my friends, is exactly why I wanted to cover this case. The tragic story of the women who fell victim to the monster that is Willie Picton is rarely told. These women are loved, and their absence is deeply felt by those who knew and loved them. Each and every one of their stories deserves to be told. I wouldn't be able to tell their stories without the work that Stevie Cameron put in, or without their friends and families sharing their stories and keeping their memories alive. Helen Hallmark would be the next woman to vanish. Helen was 32 at the time and working on the downtown east side of Vancouver. She was living at the Vernon Rooms. The exact date she went missing is unknown. What we do know is that Helen was last seen getting into a Vancouver Police Department paddy wagon. However, no record exists of her being arrested or having any official interaction with the police. Helen had long dark blonde hair and hazel eyes. She was popular throughout her school years and had once been a cheerleader. Even as she struggled through life, she always tried to help others. On a website dedicated to the missing women, a teenage girl wrote, quote, I was going through a very confusing, tough time in my life. It would have been very easy for me to turn to drugs and prostitution. It was because of several people, Helen being one of them, that I did not. When I met her, I did not do drugs, and she and her friends took me under their wing and basically sheltered me, preventing me from entering the lifestyle. I remember going to her place for dinner one night, and we had pork chops and Brussels sprouts. She was beautiful. I have gone on to nursing school, and I plan to work in the downtown east side when I graduate. I want to help people like Helen and others like her as much as I can. It is my way of paying them back because I could have easily gone down the same path. Her siblings tried desperately to locate her, but to date of this recording, Helen remains missing, although her legacy lives on through the lives of those she impacted. 22-year-old mother of four Jacqueline Murdoch was last seen at the corner of Maine and Hastings around August 14, 1997. And again, not much is known about her disappearance. Jacqueline's family begged for VPD to look for her, but according to them, nothing was done. Her niece, Jessie, wrote a letter to Jacqueline and posted it on the site for the women. It reads, Dear Aunt Jackie, I don't know what happened to you. One day you were with me and Angie and we are just having a great time. Then you disappeared. Your brother, my dad, dies of a drug overdose. I missed you and I wanted to remember you. I wanted you to tell me stories and tell me you love me. It's the hardest thing in the world to have lost you, but I promise that somehow in God's hands, I will get through such a time as this. I will make you and daddy proud of me. 
I love you, Auntie Jackie, and I know once again you are with my Father in heaven. Save a place for me. I love you always and forever. Love always, your niece for life, Jessie J. The women were disappearing more and more frequently. In 97, approximately one woman a month had vanished, and it was only September. Remember last week we talked about Gina Houston bringing women to Willie? Gina wasn't the only one. Y'all remember how Dave Picton had a penchant for new businesses, right? Well, this one would be deadly. It all started around mid-September of 97. Dave was cruising in New Westminster looking for a date, but not for himself. Renata Bond was working the corner of 4th and 12th, and the police were in full force that night. She was looking for an escape. Enter Dave Picton. He pulled up in his car and called out to her. Renata knew exactly who he was from a run-in about 10 years prior, and she couldn't stand him. But there were a shit ton of cops in the area, and she decided to take a chance and hop in. As soon as she climbed in the car, she told Dave to drive around the corner. I'm not a cop, I swear it, Dave said, as he unbuttoned his pants and pulled his junk out to prove it. He offered her a hundred bucks for oral sex, which was more than twice the going rate. But Renata turned him down. He was disgusting, dirty, and foul. It wasn't happening. Dave upped the ante and pulled out a baggie of cocaine, but even that wasn't enough to convince her. He gave up and asked her if she knew someone that could help him out. According to On the Farm, he said, The date isn't for me. It's for my brother at home. He then went on to tell her just a little bit about his brother, stating, My brother is older, a bit of an invalid, and probably couldn't get it up to get a blowjob, but he likes to have a girl try anyway. So it would be an easy date. Easy money. So she's going out there to try, and she'll make a big tip, and she can do the drugs. And there's more drugs out there, too. It was all about enough to gag a maggot, but Renata saw an opportunity for easy money. Dave Picton was going to pay her a finder's fee for her troubles, and she had a particular girl in mind, one that already owed her money. It was an offer she just couldn't refuse. She'd get that finder's fee and keep a cut of the other girl's money. You see, Renata Bond had a little enterprise of her own going on. She had a house in New Westminster, and though she was an addict and sex worker herself, she allowed other women to stay in exchange for room and board and a little slice of their profits. The girl she had in mind? It was 24-year-old Sherry Irving. She knew Sherry was desperate. Sherry had plans to get clean and sober. Just days prior, she had called a male friend who was supposed to take her back to Vancouver Island to get help. But he and Sherry had spent all their money on dope and didn't have enough to make it. Sherry owed Renata money for her room. This was the perfect plan. Renata directed Dave to her house. When they got there, she pulled Sherry to the side and gave her the details telling her she wouldn't go alone. It'd be a double date, and stated, We each get $100, and you can get half a gram of cocaine. 
but you owe me money for drugs and stuff, so I'll take 60 of your 100. That'll leave you with enough to buy tickets for the ferry, and you'll still have dope left. All this again, according to On the Farm. I mean, with friends like these, who needs enemies? Sherry agreed, with the stipulation that her male friend could come along, too. Renata told her he could go to a truck stop nearby the Picton farm and wait there. Sherry packed her bags. She and Renata got into the car with Dave and headed over to meet Willie. They pulled up to the farm, parked by Dave's house, and Willie came out to meet them. Dave gave Renata her finder's fee and Sherry followed Willie over towards his trailer. Goodbye, Sherry said to Renata. Don't worry, he'll send you the money. Renata recalled to Cameron that as she stood there, she had a sinking feeling. She thought to herself, I'm never going to see her again. And she was right. But that feeling didn't stop her from doing business with Dave or any of his friends. Dave frequently called her looking for a girl. He was quick to remind her that it wasn't for him. You know, he was a biker and he didn't need prostitutes. It was all for his weird-ass brother. Each time, he paid her $100 and threw in some drugs to sweeten the deal. Sherry Irving's family and friends recall that as a teen, she was gorgeous, outgoing, and loved rock music. She would never be seen alive again. The next woman to vanish was 24-year-old Marnie Frey. Marnie came from a solid, loving family, and her life should have never ended up the way it did her father recalled to Stevie Cameron. At 14, Marnie became hooked on drugs after being introduced to them by members of a local Asian gang, according to her father, Rick. The family struggled, her dad always wanting her to stay straight, and Marnie always ending up back on the streets. By the time she was in her late teens, early 20s, she was heavily addicted, going by the name Kit Kat, working on the downtown east side, and making pornographic movies for a group of Vietnamese gangsters. She also reportedly had ties to a Jamaican pimp named Dr. J, who we could do a whole nother series on. This devastated her family. This wasn't how things were supposed to be. This wasn't how Marnie's life was supposed to turn out. They pleaded with her to get help. And in May of 97, she had done just that, completing a detox program and moving into an apartment in Burnaby. Her sobriety didn't last long, however, and several weeks after leaving detox, Marnie was using again. On August 8th, she was transported to the hospital with a suspected drug overdose and barely survived. She had quickly lost her apartment, her sobriety, and nearly her life. On August 29th, the day before her 25th birthday, a VPD officer seen her briefly on the 100 block of East Hastings. Later that day, she called her parents from a payphone. They wished her a happy birthday and let her know that they were sending her some money and gifts. And then, crickets. She didn't call to let them know she had gotten the gifts, didn't call to say thank you, in fact, they never heard from her again. After about a week, her family tried to report her missing, first in their hometown of Campbell River, and then again in Vancouver. 
Both times they were dismissed. VPD telling them, quote, she's probably on a cruise. Call back after Christmas. Reminder, it was early September. The last time Marnie Frey's family heard from her was August 29, 1997. Her last welfare check was both issued and cashed on September 24, 1997. According to theprogress.com, Marnie's stepmom, Lynn, would later testify in 2011 at an inquiry regarding the missing women that she herself had headed to the downtown east side after Marnie's disappearance several times, and by the fall of 1998, had information that tied Marnie's disappearance directly to Willie Picton and the Picton farm. Other family members searching for their own missing loved ones had played a tape recording for her of a man stating, quote, they went with Willie and he's got the chipper. Sex workers also backed up the story, recalling to Lynn that they had been to a farm with a chipper 45 minutes from the downtown east side in Port Coquitlam. When Lynn told her foster daughter Joyce this information, she took her straight over to the Picton farm. Lynn looked past the Pitbull with AIDS sign hanging on the fence, and yeah, that was a thing, and climbed to the top to get a good look. She stated, I saw tractors, vehicles, and big mounds of dirt and grass. I didn't see any bodies or anybody there. She would have investigated further, but two dogs appeared and prevented her from going in. They weren't pit bulls, they were Rottweilers, and nobody knows if they really had AIDS. Lynn took her suspicions about Willie and the farm to Deputy Constable Lori Schinner, who gave her, quote, heck for climbing the fence, but promised to investigate. But that investigation wouldn't happen for years, and women continued to vanish. Lynn Frey was right, though. Some of her daughter Marnie's remains would later be found on the Picton farm. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. About the same time Marnie Frey vanished, 33-year-old Cindy Beck also disappeared. Cindy had been living in the Vernon rooms and working the low track just prior to her disappearance. But things hadn't always been this way. She had been adopted by a Mennonite couple and raised with two siblings. Her family loved her fiercely. When she was just a teen, she had a son she called Tony. Cindy knew deep down she couldn't raise him, so she put him up for adoption to give him a chance at a life she wasn't capable of providing, just as her biological mother had done for her. Like many women on the downtown east side, she kept in contact with her family via the telephone. When Cindy didn't call on her 33rd birthday, they knew something was very wrong. Cindy Louise Beck remains missing to this day. According to the Doe Network, she's a white female, 5 foot 8, 110 pounds, with long auburn hair and brown eyes. And while no one can pinpoint the exact date Cindy vanished, it is believed to have been sometime in September of 1997. By the end of November, another Cindy would also be missing. 
Life for Cindy Felix had never been easy. Her parents separated when she was just a child. Her mother remarried several times. However, Cindy never bonded with any of her new stepdads. By the time she was 16, she longed for a relationship with her biological father. Her mom thought it might do her some good. I mean, he was her father. Cindy was struggling a little bit, and maybe reconnecting would be just the thing she needed. Her mom tracked him down and discovered he was living in a trailer in Florida. They got in touch with him, and he seemed excited to reunite with his daughter. He bought a plane ticket for her to come and visit. Cindy was so excited, but that excitement would be short-lived because according to her mother, Marilyn, as she spoke to Stevie Cameron, quote, when she got off the plane, he was there to meet her with a Mickey of rye and some marijuana and started right away to give it to her. Then he tried to talk her into sleeping with him. He told her that's how a father gets to know his daughter. Next thing I know, I get a phone call from Cindy. She's hysterical. Her father has gone off the wall with a gun and is threatening to burn the trailer down. I told her to get the hell out of there, again, according to her mother. After speaking to Marilyn, Cindy booked it to a neighbor's house and stayed there until her mom could fly her back home. She was never the same. She had once been a competitive swimmer, outgoing, and full of life. She soon became heavily addicted to heroin and a shell of her former self. In her 20s, she met and married a car salesman with an appetite for flashy jewelry and endless drugs. They had a child right off the bat and named her Teresa. Little Teresa was born addicted to heroin. Watching her infant child withdraw from drugs was a game changer for Cindy. She gave it all up and seemingly so did Teresa's father. There for a couple of years, things were going great. But eventually, Cindy relapsed and her daughter Teresa went to live with her father. Cindy fell hard and fast and ended up homeless on the downtown east side. The years ticked on and things didn't get better for her. Tragically, when her daughter Teresa was a teen, she started running away from her father and eventually she too was addicted and involved in sex work. Cindy loved her daughter. But as an addict herself, there wasn't much she could do to help her. By her mid-30s, she was living with a heroin trafficker named John Anderson. Apparently, John really sucked at his occupation because not only did he have a $1,000 a day habit, Cindy was selling her body to pay for his dope as well as her own. Some more years passed and Cindy sank even deeper into her addiction. The last time her mother had physically seen her was Christmas of 1996. But the two spoke over the phone several times through the summer of 97. Her mother knew something was off when the call stopped coming. And while I couldn't find anything on the specific details of the last time Cindy was seen alive, it is reported that she was last seen by anyone on November 26, 1997. She was 43 years old at that time. 
The next and final woman to vanish in 1997 was 25-year-old Andrea Borhaven. Andrea didn't exactly have an ideal upbringing, and by the time she was a teen, she was living in a group home. After leaving the home, she had moved to Vancouver and with limited resources, ended up on the downtown east side. According to an article in the Canadian press, police sources say that Andrea was last seen in 1997, but wasn't reported missing until 1999. Her mother spoke to the outlet and recalled that just prior to her disappearance, Andrea was trying to get clean and come off the streets, stating, She was coming home. All her clothes were sent home on the bus. I have all her clothes, and then I didn't hear from her. By the end of 1997, 13 women vanished without a trace. And yet, the Vancouver police still did little to nothing. The community was outraged, and rightfully so. For six whole-ass years, family friends, and supporters had marched every Valentine's Day demanding justice and action from the police. And for six years, their cries seemingly fell on deaf ears. Deputy Constable Lori Shinner was right when he spoke to BBC and stated, If these women were from any other walk of life, there would be total outrage. Search parties, volunteers, roadblocks. On a very deep level, a large segment of society and the policing community didn't feel these women were worth searching for, and many people questioned whether or not they wanted to be found. While all this was going on, just what was Willie Picton up to? I mean, between Gina Houston, Lauren Girls in from the drop-in center, and his brother Dave hand-delivering them to his crusty ass at the trailer, You'd think he had his hands full, but you'd be wrong. He still frequented hotel bars on the downtown east side. His favorite was still the Astoria. He still picked up women. He'd chat them up at the bars, buying them drink after drink and supplying endless drugs. All while he sipped sodas and made sure he stayed sober as a church mouse. Because, you know, he'd need his wits about him. It gave him the upper hand. And maybe he was getting a little bored with the inaction of the police himself. He decided to spice things up just a bit on Christmas Eve 1997, later recalling to an undercover police officer just what he had done to taunt the police. He had released two of his pigs on the downtown east side, and well, I'll let you hear it straight from the shitbird's mouth. Quote, I was an asshole on December 24th, 1997. I was a really hard asshole. Twas the night before Christmas and all through the streets. Not a soul to be found except for two little pigs and two working girls. It was comical for the first little while until tragedy set in. So what happened is one of the cops chasing the pig up the hill, the other cops chasing the pig down the hill. Now when he goes down the hill, I would love to see him wipe out. Anyways, anyway, came across there. It was comical for the first little while, but I kind of liked it. I liked it. Yeah, 
How often do you see a pig chasing after a pig? Fucking cop shop. Anyways, this ended in Gastown and I was on the other side of Hastings. So anyways, I let them go and got the fuck out of there. And then it says the pigs are in the SPCA and we're waiting for the owner to come forward. I said, yeah, right. And that was December 24th, 1997. A photo was captured by a news photographer, ran in the paper, and then later introduces evidence during Willie Picton's trial. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Opportunity after opportunity to catch Willie presented itself, but nobody pounced. Was it because many just couldn't have cared less that these women were being preyed upon? Whatever the reason, evil continued to flourish. But that will have to wait until next week because unfortunately, we're out of time. Join me next week for part number eight of the Pig Farmer series. Stevie Cameron's book on the farm, Robert William Picton, and the tragic story of Vancouver's missing women can be purchased on Amazon or pretty much wherever you get your books. It is wonderfully written and details absolutely every aspect of this case. I'll put a link in the show notes. As always, you can find more information on my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these. New episodes drop every Thursday. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode. I can't wait for next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.